what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath begotten us again unto a lively or living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. How wonderful the blessed Savior is to our mind and thought tonight. As we come to this closing chapter in this short epistle, the third chapter of Second Thessalonians, last time we took the first three verses uh, really pertaining to the faithfulness of God. Everything that we say tonight is going to be hinged to that reality, that God is faithful. Any of the doctrines that we love uh, concerning the elect family of God are hinged upon that principle of God's absolute faithfulness. That's why we believe in the preservation of the saints. That's why we believe in the perseverance of the saints of God, because of God's faithfulness. So the Apostle Paul is, is lifting that up uh, before us, and he's going to build on that foundation some very practical uh, information for the church in every age. We want to title our study tonight, Waiting for the Lord of Peace. Waiting for the Lord of Peace. Evidently, in the community of believers in Thessalonica, there was some misunderstandings or perhaps some misgivings about the second coming of Christ. The imminence of His coming was uh, primarily taught to them, and they rejoiced in that. They also rejoiced in the eschatology uh, aspects, the, the signs of the times, the signs of things that must come to pass prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the day of judgment when Christ shall judge the world in righteousness. Some of the believers in Thessalonica were carried away with that teaching to an extent that they became unproductive. They were, they were so much anticipating the second coming of Christ because after all they were being persecuted just like Christ said would happen to the church before his second coming. They were being persecuted not only by the Jews in their community but also by the Roman government. Remember, Nero had risen to power, and he was a crazy man. And, and Rome, as an idea, Rome as a, a ruling empire, despised Christianity. You have to understand, uh, the Roman government would not allow a Christian to be in a position of leadership. Many of the jobs that were provided by the Roman Empire would not be given to a person claiming to know Christ or to love and serve Christ. Unless you were willing to uh, offer salt as an incense to the genius of Caesar and say these words, Caesar is Lord. You were ostracized, imprisoned, isolated. Um, you were uh, placed on the outside 
uh, circle of any form of public influence in that day. So it would be understandable why some of the brethren in Thessalonica would think that the coming of Christ has to be quick. It has to be soon. And some of them believed it to the extent that they were willing to quit their jobs. They were willing to just kind of uh, sit in seclusion, if I could call it uh, the uh, sanctified solitude as uh, uh, Brother Gill uh, called it. And uh, in that position, they refused to work. We're going to learn something tonight about work. Because uh, there's no excuse for an able-bodied Christian not to work. And it was becoming a pretty big issue in the... Uh, church at Thessalonica. We're going to see that tonight. But watch this. <clears throat> remembering that the Lord is faithful, remembering that His promises are unfailing, His power is unending, His protective hand is certain. Remembering that. He says in verse 4, And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things that we Command you. Now, the word in that verse that I would like you to underline or underscore uh, is the word command. Because you see, the Apostle Paul was an apostle. And the things that we're going to share tonight are not just good ideas or suggestions for better living, they are actually mandates, directives from apostolic authority that belong to the Apostle Paul. He's not trying to express an opinion. He's not trying to uh, instill in them something that would bring uh, gratitude to his own heart. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he is writing commands. He is writing directives uh, to the church then and today. He's writing with that great authority that pertains to the apostles. In verse 5, he says, and the Lord. And remember, last time we were together, we just kind of went back through uh, the chapters here and found that the Apostle Paul used the word Lord more in these two letters than he did any other letter that he wrote. He used the word Lord, kurios, because they were being persuaded to consider Caesar as Lord. But the Apostle Paul says, always remember that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And what he says here is concerning the Lord of peace. In verse 5 he says, the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. And watch this. And the patient waiting for Christ. Into the love of God. And the patient waiting for Christ. You see, he's, he's, he's sharing with us. Um, his identity with the church at Thessalonica in anticipating the certainty of the second coming of Christ. Paul is saying, I want to see it too. I'm living in the, the great hope that Jesus Christ will come in my day. The apostle Paul uh, had that same hope. And he was rejoicing that they had that hope. But he uses the word patiently. 
That means that while you're waiting, you need to be doing what God called you to do. Don't use the reality of the second coming of Christ to obscure your responsibility and duty today. You see what he's doing? All right, he's setting the stage here, and he says, I want you to patiently wait for Christ. Now we command, there's that same word again. This is by apostolic authority. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Now stop right there and consider what he's saying. Some people believe that the church is the haven or the home of anybody that wants to be there, no matter how they live, no matter what they profess to believe, no matter what uh, their lives are dedicated to. But that is certainly erroneous. When he's talking about a uh, disorderly walk, brothers and sisters, he's talking about someone that has come into the Christian fellowship that is not walking in harmony with the teachings of Christ. They're not walking in the way that Christ has laid down for His church to walk. And I'm going to say more about that in a moment. But I want you to see that there is a place for discipline within the church. And this discipline is not to get rid of a problem. This discipline is geared or uh, engineered by God to preserve the purity of the church, but also... To reach out to those that have fallen with an idea of rescuing, restoring. Remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. You which are spiritual, you which are walking in the spirit, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness and fear, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. See, discipline, the objective of discipline is to restore. That, I want to underscore that. Uh, many times we've seen churches abuse the authority that they've been given in discipline. And in that abuse, it always brings sorrow. It always brings anxiety. It always uh, brings the opposite of peace. It always brings confusion. So what we have to do is follow this command. If someone is not walking in harmony with the teachings of the Word of God and with the uh, uh, truth that he's committed to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and they will not repent, the church has no other recourse but to withdraw their fellowship from that person. Later in this chapter, we're going to find in verse... Let's go ahead and read it in verse 15. He says, Yet count him not as an enemy... But admonish him as a brother. Admonish him as a brother in Christ. See, that, that, that has a uh, so, so different uh, principle behind it uh, than the discipline that many of us have witnessed uh, through the years. Uh, it ought to be done with a great deal of, of prayer, a great deal of labor, a great deal of fear before the Lord. I'll never forget my dad's first church was Waco, Texas. They called him to pastor. He was he was ordained in Colorado, and they immediately the church in Waco called him to pastor, and he went there. That's where I was baptized in Waco, Texas, and 
and, uh, uh, and, and I'll never forget, as a member, a young boy, member of the church, I was so excited about being able to vote in conference. And uh, we had about 100 members back then, and, and there was a certain situation that came up involving a young lady that was with child. And uh, one of the deacons of the church, I won't mention names, but one of the deacons of the church stood up and says, absolutely, we've got to get rid of, oh, I tell you, boy, he just went into a tirade. And another deacon stood up and seconded the motion. And my dad stood there and looked him right in the eye and said, we're not going to take this up today. We're not going to take this up today. Well, they had a meeting with Dad after the service, you see, and said, you can't do that. You know, we're the deacons of this church. You can't do that, Brother Harris. We realize you're inexperienced, and you don't know what you're doing, but we do. And we got to get rid of this person. He said, the only way I would ever oversee, and I was, I was there. He said, the only way that I would ever oversee something like that is if there was a broken heart in every deacon of this church. I'll never forget it. I mean, that just stunned me. I didn't really understand it then, but I do now. And what he was talking about was what the actions of the church should reflect is the love of Christ for this fallen person, for this erroneous person, see? With the objective to save that person, to help that person, you see? And I've never forgotten that. Never have. Well, I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. When you withdraw from a brother or a sister in Christ, it ought to be with a broken heart. It ought to be with all the love you can muster for that person as well as for the Lord. And he says this. He emphasizes this. He's going to, uh, and, and the, the theological term is amplify. He's going to amplify that principle by saying, and not after the tradition which ye, he received of us. Now the word tradition there is a biblical word. And it's a good word. The Greek word is paradosis. And it literally means to hand down from one generation to another. You athletes here uh, this evening, you would recognize this as passing the baton. Passing the baton to the next runner. If you've ever had that kind of experience in track and field, you know that uh, a lot of races are lost, won or lost, in the transfer of the baton. You see, if you drop the baton, you have to stop in the race to get the baton into the right hand. And it slows it down. Brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to pass the baton of truth to the next generation. And we can't do that if we are not ourselves committed to that end. See, that has to be the vision of the church. Not only to see ourselves, but to see the next generation in their service of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Much could be said on this score, brothers and sisters, but just write this down. 
we could talk about false tradition all night. Uh, traditions of men. Jesus said to the Pharisees, remember, he said, you, you do err because you teach for doctrine the commandments of men. You exalt your tradition above the word of God. And when you do that, you're going to err. When we're talking about the biblical view of tradition, which is also synonymous with the word ordinance. Did you know that? The, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, when he said to maintain the ordinances as I have delivered to them, the ordinance, that's paradosis, tradition. They're the same word, Greek word. And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand there's a responsibility connected to that. As God has given us the truth but write this down, Mark chapter 7, verses 2 through 13, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. The, this is where the Bible is talking about vain tradition, bad tradition, man-made tradition, tradition that's exalting itself above the Word of God. We don't want that kind of tradition. But then I find true tradition here in this Letter in First Thessalonians chapter two verse fifteen, the apostle Paul said, "Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by epistle, whether by the preached word or by the written word." You see, in other words, the tradition or the teaching, the doctrine and practice of the New Testament church is uh, is tethered to the teaching directives of the word of God that's the kind of tradition we need to preserve that's what he's talking about here and he's insistent upon it in verse 7 he says for yourselves know how ye ought an obligation ye ought to follow us the word follow there mimites it means to mimic like a, a little baby. You know, you can hold a little baby and, and you can say something like, uh, Grandpa's do this, goo goo gaga. And that little fella says, goo goo gaga. And you can kind of do your eyebrows like this, and the little, little fellow, what he's doing, he's mimicking you. That's the word that's used here. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to mimic me, I want you to be like me. And uh, he says, uh, even as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me, even as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, mimic us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. The Apostle Paul is not only reflecting upon his teaching, but he's reflecting upon his life example. He says, I gave you that example when I labored among you. You, you were witnesses. Of how I lived my life. I, I, I was as an example. He says, Neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing, but wrought and with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. This is Paul's example. Everywhere he went, he refused to take money for his labors. We find that in Acts chapter 20, don't we? Verse 34, when he says, You have borne me witness if with mine own hands. Have I ministered unto my necessities, and not mine only, but also they that were with me. And he says, uh, uh, Take care that you minister to the weak among you, for as it is written, God loveth a cheerful giver. The biggest giver, the best giver in our church ought to be the ministers. 
ought to be the preachers. The biggest labors ought to be the ministers. He also underscores that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 3 through 14, and Galatians chapter 5, verses 4 and 6. We don't have time to go to those passages, but what he's doing, he's setting the right example. He's setting the right example. Now, somebody uses that, and they say, well, that means that the church is not supposed to give the preachers anything, right? Wrong. That's not what he's teaching at all. In fact, uh, I believe the more the church ministers to ministers, the more blessed they are. And I've witnessed that in my own life and seen it through the years. Uh, I'll never forget talking to a a well-known minister in Oklahoma years ago, and he was, I was sharing with him my burden for evangelism, and he says, oh, I was young once, and I had a zeal just like you do, Brother Jeff. This was, I don't mind telling you who it is, Oba Cummins, great minister of God. He said, I was young and zealous just like you are, and I decided there needed to be more churches up in Kansas. I said, well, what happened? He says, in those days, we had to take a train, Brother Jeff. The train, it took four days just to get to the first town. And then you didn't know if they were going to meet you or not. But he says, you know, I did that year after year after year. He said, I did it for 15 years, Jeff. He said, I preached all over Kansas. And God blessed us to start churches. He says, I don't remember how many churches, but... A, a great number of churches, and I enjoyed going round that circuit every year until the last year. See, because I knew there was only one church in Kansas left, and that was at Perth, Kansas. I said, Brother Obel, what happened to those churches? He took out a quarter out of his pocket, and he said, Covetousness blew me away I wasn't expecting that answer at all he said brother Jeff I uh, I went on that last trip I preached in 18 different churches and I had to sell my pistol to get the the uh, a train ticket back to Oklahoma City and when I got back to Oklahoma Oklahoma City I had a quarter in my pocket he said, Brother Jeff, I was gone 45 days from my family. And those churches didn't help me a bit. I never went back. And those churches aren't there today. It was a great lesson for me. I, I remember those kind of lessons. And, 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 and brothers and sisters, I, I, I believe with all my heart that if the churches respond in faith in their giving... God will provide them great blessings in ministry among them. And you've seen it, and I have too, and I rejoice in that. And Paul is saying, that's the kind of uh, environment I want to see at Thessalonica. He says, but because, verse 9, but because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us, for even when we were with you, that this we commanded, there's the third reference to commanded, that you, that if a man would not work, neither should he eat. Paul says, I've taught it. I've lived it. I've given you an example of it. The Lord has shown th- this truth to you, that there is dignity in work. 
There's dignity in work. Did you know when, when God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, He, he, he uh, uh, gave them an environment in which they worked. Did you know that? He made man to till the ground, right? See, there's honor in work, honest work. And Christians ought to lift that up, especially in this day and time when so many people are sitting at home on their laurels getting a check from the government when they ought to be out working for an honest living. I won't charge you a dime for that. I, I just had to say that. God is the one that ordained that men should work. Genesis 2, verses 15 and 16, and chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And let me add something else to that. <laughs> In Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, when we all get to heaven, guess what? We're going to serve Him there. We're going to be working. We're going to be working. I've already signed up for the street cleaner job. I've already signed up. We're going to be working because there's honor, there's dignity in work. If any man would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. You see, they've got too much time on their hands. Now them that are such we command fourth time. Fourth time you find the word command. And exhort, encourage, by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. That's exactly what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, that, that, that we would uh, do our work, whatever work that is, do our work quietly, not drawing attention to ourselves. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing, Ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. What does that mean? Don't faint. Don't lose heart. Why? Galatians chapter 4 verse 9. Why? Because if, if, if you and I are willing to sow, God says He's willing to give the reap, the reaping. God honors our labors, especially when they're to glorify Him. And if any man obey not our word, listen to Paul's authority. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. That means socially. Have no company with him that he may be ashamed, that he might be ashamed of his uh, disorderly walk, and that might God, under the blessing of God, bring that person to repentance. Okay, I don't. I, I'm going to say this, and you might disagree with me on it, but I'm going to say it anyway. I doubt very seriously that the uh, that the prodigal son would have ever come home if his father had sent sandwiches to the pig pen. If he had sent uh, what he needed in the faraway country. I doubt if he had ever come home. But the Bible says that when he was in want, when he realized he had no recourse left, he said, that's when he said, I will arise and return to my father's house. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to encourage you. 
especially moms and daddies that have uh, prodigal sons and daughters. Don't send sandwiches to the pig pen. Now, here he is, and he says, Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, that means that you're to behave yourself in Christian love toward them, even though they're not walking in harmony with you. There's never a time when Christians ought to be rude, uh, insensitive, calloused. There's never a time. But there is a time when we can lovingly stand firm against the life choices that our children and grandchildren make that are opposed to God's Word. Verse 16, I've got to hurry up here. I'm already at my limit. Give me five more minutes. That's what they're going to put on my tombstone. But I've got to get this because it's a jewel. Verse 16 is a jewel. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. Did you know that this is the only time in the Old or New Testament scriptures that Jesus Christ is called the Lord of peace? Did you know that? Oh, I know. You're sitting there saying, what about Romans 15, 33? That's the God of peace. The God of peace. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. The God of peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The Prince of Peace. In 1 Corinthians 14, 33. The author of peace. He's not the author of confusion, but the author of peace. In uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. He's the King of Peace. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He's the embodiment of our peace. He is our peace. All right? And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, He's the one that ushers in the kingdom of peace, uh, of which there will be no end. Here the Apostle Paul uses that precious word, Lord, kurios, Lord of peace, Himself. Give you peace. He's the one that gives peace. He's the one that gives unity in the body. And the Lord be with you all. That's the presence of the Lord with us. See, that's where peace comes from. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I just want one closing thought here about waiting for the Lord of peace. You see, the Apostle Paul dictated every letter. That was common in that day. They would dictate and then a secretary would write what they were saying down. And the Apostle Paul evidently had an eye affliction or some kind of an affliction in which he was not able to write in a normal size. And in every epistle that Paul wrote, he signed his name. He signed his name. He wanted the church to know that these are the words that God had given him. And he says, this is my sign or token in every epistle. Now, what are you going to take away from tonight? I hope you take away a blessing. But I want to encourage you and I to wait in the way that God intended us to do. Wait and work. 
Wait and serve. Wait and sacrifice. Wait and witness. Wait in that way for the Lord of peace, and you'll know his everlasting peace. God bless you. Thank you for your good attention. <laughs> hmm.